Well, thank you for gathering for Bible study. Those tuning in online, we're grateful that you've joined us as well. We're in the book of 1 Peter, hope in a world that is not our home. And uh, as I was preparing for tonight's Bible study, I was reading a commentary by Pastor Chuck Swindoll. I know you know that name and you listen to him on radio or perhaps watch him online or something. But I was reading this commentary on 1 Peter by Chuck Swindoll and the title that he gave to the passage of Scripture we're looking at tonight, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I thought the title that he gave to that section of Scripture was very interesting. The title was, or is, How to Shock the Pagan Crowd. How to Shock the Pagan Crowd. Now, I chose not to use that title, but I like how it grabs your attention. What could Peter possibly be writing about that would, quote, shock the pagan crowd? Well, let's read it for ourselves and find out. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. That's where I got the title of our study tonight. If you've got your outline, you'll see the title is Done with Sin. So he says in verse 2, As a result, <clears throat> he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The chapter heading in my Bible, your chapter headings may be different in your Bible, but the chapter heading in my Bible is very short and to the point, living for God. Living for God. I want you to notice as we begin chapter 4, the very first word of the chapter Peter opens this chapter with a transitional clause, the word therefore. He's pointing back as he's writing these words, he's pointing back to something that he's already said in chapter 3. And he's pointing back to what he said in chapter 3 in order to make application in chapter 4. Specifically, he's, I think he's referring directly back with the word therefore, he's referring directly back to verse 18. It's highlighted in my Bible Verse 18, chapter 3 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit. I'm going to read that again, and this time, because it is such a familiar scripture to you, you may read past it and not notice something very important. So I'm going to read verse 18 again, and, and I want you to watch closely how this passage is worded. He says, Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then watch this. Notice this. He was put to death in the body but was made alive 
by the Spirit. Now before we get into this too far, I just ask you to notice those two words. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit. And that's why when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, we see the word therefore. Because listen to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. If you've read this carefully with me, chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 1, you've seen a word repeated three times. I want you to tell me what that word is. I tried to emphasize it, but look in those two verses, and there's a word repeated three times. What's that word? Body, I'm not sure of your translation, but in my translation, it's the word body. Let's examine the text in chapter 3, verse 18, going back there for a moment. Just trying to set the stage for all that we're going to be studying tonight. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter is emphasizing that Jesus experienced, underline, experienced suffering and death. For Christ died for our sins. That was a literal human physical suffering. Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And here's the suffering part. He was put to death in the body. This wasn't a theoretical death. It wasn't a spiritual death, spiritualized death. Jesus was actually put to death, as it says here. He was put to death, actually experienced the pain and the suffering on the cross. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, that's what is emphasized. Therefore, since Christ, what's that next word? Suffered. Since Christ suffered, and how did he suffer? The Bible says he suffered in what? In his body. Now stay with me. Since Christ suffered in his body, since Jesus experienced physical suffering, those who are followers of Jesus should expect to experience or undergo a similar treatment. Watch how he builds the case. Verse chapter 3, verse 18, he talks about Christ died for our sins and he was put to death in the body. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, here's the application, arm yourselves also. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. It's interesting that Peter uses the example of Jesus and his death to say to us, listen folks, you need to arm yourself too. Now the phrase, to arm yourselves, is a military term that refers to a soldier picking up his weapons in preparation for battle. He picks up his shield, he picks up his sword, or his spear, whatever it may be. He arms himself. And you know as well as I do that it's important to arm yourself prior to the battle. You don't, in the middle of the battle, go looking for the weapons. You arm yourself prior to what you're going to experience, prior to the battle. It's preparation for the battle that is ahead. And Peter says, therefore, since or because Christ suffered, physically suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. 
What does it mean to be done with sin? And he links this idea of being done with sin with this idea of suffering in our body. So here's what I want to do. I want to push pause for just a moment. <clears throat> We've watched for uh, two or three times now a video, a short video from uh, Right Now Media and uh, Kyle Eidelman as he teaches through First Peter. And in the, in the video we're about to watch, it's about 12 minutes or so, uh, it really is a summary of the entire fourth chapter. And so I thought it would be good to to watch this video, to get an idea, though we're not studying tonight the entire fourth chapter, it would be a good idea to get the broad picture so that we can focus back in on these six verses and understand them in their context. So let's watch this together. Kyle Eidelman, as he describes for us 1 Peter chapter 4. So how can you tell if someone is a Christian? It would be great if you could just tell by looking, right? I mean, there are plenty of religious systems that have some kind of outward physical indicator that allows people to know that a person might be a part of that religion. It could be a special hat that is worn. It could be a dot in the middle of a forehead that just lets you know. We can't use those because those are already taken. We can't all wear shirts and ties and ride bikes around because that's been taken. So. Any ideas? I mean, how can we identify that someone is a follower of Jesus? Many people who say they're Christians aren't necessarily referring to some heartfelt belief commitment. Oftentimes they're just talking about a family heritage. They call themselves Christians because their parents were Christians. The thing is, Christianity isn't hereditary. It's not something that's just automatically passed down from generation to generation. So the question is, how can you tell? Is it because they pray before a meal? Is it because they attend Easter and Christmas Eve services? Well, the disciple Peter listened to Jesus teach on this, and Jesus explained how you can tell if someone is one of his followers. And when Jesus explained it to Peter and the disciples, he gives two primary evidences that show whether or not someone is a Christian. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus says, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. In other words, you can tell what's real about someone, not necessarily by the words they speak, but by the life they live. The fruit proves what kind of seeds are in the ground. So how a person lives is one evidence. And then Jesus gives another evidence in John 13, verse 34. He says to Peter and the other followers, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my followers. You are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus makes it clear that the most compelling evidence that we have, that we are his followers, is the way we live and the way we love. So ultimately, letting our light shine is more than what we say. It's more than how we feel. 
It's living out God's love in our lives. So how can you tell if someone is a Christian? Well, the world will know that we are followers of Christ by those two things, how we live and how we love. Peter learned all that directly from Jesus and is now passing that teaching on in a letter he wrote to Christians that were facing severe persecution and had been scattered across Rome. They were suffering under Nero and Peter is going to make it clear that when the pressure is on, that when they're facing incredible obstacles and opposition, it's also an incredible opportunity to point people to Jesus by the way they live and the way they love. So here's what Peter says in chapter four, verse one. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. And so Peter says, in the midst of the suffering, arm yourself with the same attitude of Jesus. In other words, right now, we need to prepare our hearts and our minds to respond to difficulties and challenges and sufferings with the same attitude of Christ. You don't arm yourself in the middle of conflict. You arm yourself going into the conflict so that you're ready and prepared. And for these Christians, things are rough, but they're gonna get a lot worse. And so Peter says, now is the time to arm yourself with the same attitude as Jesus had when he suffered. Uh, we've heard this from Peter before as we've studied the book of 1 Peter. It means that you don't trade insult for insult. It means that you don't go on a rant under some news column and use all caps and a lot of exclamation points and yell at people in your typing. It means that instead, you're going to have the same attitude of Christ, who made himself nothing, who took on the very nature of a servant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, according to Philippians chapter two. So that's the attitude that we need to work on now so that when we're mistreated and when we suffer, when we face difficulties, we will have the same attitude as Christ. Uh, Peter has more insight for us. He says, people will know that you're Christians by the way you live, and you can expect for there to be some abuse, some um, ridicule for abstaining from worldly living. Even when that holiness is done in humility, that holiness can feel like an indictment on somebody else's worldliness. Verses three and four, he says, for you've spent enough time in the past choosing to do what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're surprised. Now they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless and wild living. And as a result, they heap abuse on you. Peter says, of, of course, that's what happens. And of course, your former friends, the people you used to hang out with, of course, they're surprised that you're no longer doing what they do, that you no longer kind of plunge into this way of living. And so what do they do? Well, they slander you, they make fun of you, they give you a hard time because you're living differently than they are. Caught off guard by it. They don't know exactly how to relate to you because they see that you're living differently and you have these convictions that they don't have. And so they slander you. The NIV translates it, they heap abuse on you, maybe to your face, maybe behind your back but you'll feel it. But remember, Peter says, that all of us will have to stand before him, that he is ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. So keep that in mind, right? When you're tempted to just kind of acquiesce because of pressure, when you're tempted to give in because others are giving you a hard time, remember that you and I will be held accountable for the words we speak and the life that we live. In verse seven, 
Peter announces that the end is near. Uh, he means this by way of encouragement. It doesn't feel very encouraging when someone essentially says the world's coming to an end. But this is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who's speaking these words, and he's saying, hey, the end is near. This isn't gonna last forever. What you're going through is temporary. And as a result, in this temporary place, we live sacrificially, and in every way, we give glory to God through Jesus. Verse seven, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Peter says the end is near, and so be intentional. Make sure that you're praying. Our prayers should be marked with this intensity and this intentionality because we know we don't have that much time left. Our time here is short. It's rough, a lot of turbulence on the plane, but we're gonna be landing soon. And so Peter gives some encouragement to us as we pray to look for the return of Christ. Because the end is near, he says, love each other. And verse eight says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, love each other deeply. Showing that kind of love to each other can change any situation. It can alter any circumstance. It can bring light into any darkness. It can mend any wound. Love covers all. And Peter says love is above all. Loving each other deeply is above all. It's above your religious rule keeping. It's above, you know, getting ready for church and coming every weekend. Above all, love each other deeply because the end is near. Verse nine says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality is a compound word in the original language and it means love strangers. Love those, in other words, who aren't a part of your group. Love those who are outsiders. Love those who don't agree with you. Love those who don't see things the way you see them. Love the unlovable. Love those who don't show love back. Uh, too often times when we think about showing love, we think about showing love to people who love us. And that's good, I mean, that's a wonderful thing, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. Hospitality is giving love to strangers. It's caring about, it's providing for, it's serving people who are not a part of our community. And so we love without looking for anything in return. The end is near, verse 10 says, because of that, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so that is the call for us to use our gifts, not for our own edification, but for the edification of others, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to encourage others. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, Peter writes, God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. So in chapter four, verse 12 through 13, Peter goes on to warn Christians living as these minorities in this society. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come to test you if, if something strange was happening to you. And sometimes we act like it just shouldn't be happening, that perhaps because we are followers of Jesus, we should somehow be exempt from these things when Peter's making the opposite point, that it's because we're followers of Jesus that we can expect these things. And he says, instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
when you suffer, be glad about it because that suffering partners you with Jesus and it produces a joy in you that's gonna be so much greater when Jesus returns. So he says, don't be surprised by this. Don't be caught off guard. Don't act like it's strange. Instead, embrace suffering as something God uses to refine your faith, to reveal his blessings, to confirm the presence of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Verse 14, if you're insulted, he writes, because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So when we're insulted, when we're mocked, when we're belittled, when we're berated, when we're vilified or marginalized, there's this tendency, and I've got plenty of it in me, to just pridefully give it right back. But their insults, if I read this right, their insults carry with it a blessing. Every insult carries a blessing from God. So we should be glad when it happens. And our response should be to praise God. Look at verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And Peter says we should proudly, unashamedly bear the name of Christ. And if or when that brings suffering for us and to us, we should embrace it. So our ability to love others depends on our active belief. Our compassion for others demonstrates our conviction for Christ. If we have a conviction for Jesus, we will demonstrate that through compassion to others. Rather than seeking to serve ourselves, we should willingly devote ourselves to serving others. In doing so, persecution and suffering may come, may come from the world, but Peter says God will care for our needs and he will be with us along the way. And one day there will be a reward for us in heaven. All right, very good summary of, of that fourth chapter. And I wanna go back now to chapter four, verse one, and look at verses one through six with you. <clears throat> I want to highlight uh, what we looked at a moment ago. Therefore, verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves, that's you and I, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, this idea that to be done with sin, which is the title of our study tonight, uh, the idea of being done with sin, it, Peter's not suggesting that you can reach a point where you're no longer capable of sinning. That'd be nice if we could get there, wouldn't it? If we could just say, okay, I've been a Christian now for X number of years, and, and, and sin, I just don't struggle with sin anymore. That's, I'm done with sin. That, that's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's saying that once, watch this now, once you cross the threshold of suffering, let me say it this way. Once you cross the threshold of suffering for your faith, the temptations of the world no longer are as tempting as they used to be. Suffering enables you to get your priorities in order, if you will. Uh, sinful desires and practices that once seemed important now seem almost insignificant because you have suffered for your faith. Now, that's something you and I don't know very much about. But the people that Peter was writing to, they knew that firsthand. <clears throat> and Peter was saying one of the benefits 
of you going through this time of suffering like Christ suffered in his body and you are now having to suffer in your body. And one of the benefits is sin no longer has the pull it used to have. That which seemed to be so incredibly important to you at one time now may seem insignificant because you are, quote, done with sin. Now, what does that really look like? Look on your notes. I've got two points I want to make tonight as we work quickly through this text about what, it, what does it look like to be done with sin, especially in relation to suffering. Here's number one. God's will becomes the determining factor in your life. You put that in the blank. God's will becomes the determining factor in your life. Here's how Peter describes it in verse 2. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In my study Bible, I've got that highlighted and underlined, and, and I've got a notation in the column that I've written with a date beside it, because that verse just speaks so much to me, maybe to you as well. Look how he describes this. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Look up here for a moment. He's, let's think in terms of a timeline. And I know this is a very short uh, piece of paper here, but let's think in terms of a timeline. He says, now there comes this time in your life where you decide that whatever the time is, you decide that for the rest of your earthly life. Is that how he says it in verse 2? As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Look up here for a moment. There was a time, Peter would say, when you lived your life for evil human desires. And then something happened in your life. And after you've had this experience with Jesus Christ, over here you lived your life for, uh, for evil desires. And now you're focused on the will of God. What made the difference? Where was the turning point? Of course, you can see it was the cross. It was that opportunity to come into a relationship with God. And that becomes the turning point of your life. And now you're not living your life any longer. You used to live this way. But now you're not living your life any longer for evil human desires. But now you're living your life for the will of God. We'll come back to this drawing in just a moment and talk about that further. <clears throat> So here's Peter's point. Look up here. Peter is saying, when God's will becomes more important to you than your own personal desires, you're done with sin. It's not saying you'll never sin again. It's not saying you'll never be tempted. But when the will of God becomes the driving, determining factor in your life, you can say, because of the cross, because of my relationship with God through Jesus Christ, my desire is now to do the will of God. And because my desire to honor and glorify God is the driving force in my life, I'm done with sin. I don't want to live that way anymore. That's what Peter is talking about. When God's will becomes the, de the determining factor of your life, human desires or the will of God and it all comes down to what made, the, what made the difference in my life. And so human desires or evil desires, 
fall away because of the prominence of the will of God in my life. That's verse 2. So God's will becomes the determining factor in your life. And then the second point, if you put this on your notes, you've closed the door on godly living. That's what it means to be done with sin. Number two, it means you've closed the door on godless living. And this is in verses 3 through 6 where he really gets into detail. And it really is quite surprising what he says. Beginning verse 3, he talks about how they've closed the door on godless living. Here's what he says, verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. What is it that pagans choose to do? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. You've spent enough time in the past, he says, doing what pagans choose to do. Uh, You might describe it on this side as the wasted years of sinful living. We could list all of those things that he's, but they're there in the text for you. The wasted years of sinful living. Peter's referring to the life, look up here for a moment. He's referring to the life that they lived before they were saved. The wasted years of sinful living. Some of you, or some of you watching online, you may remember the wasted years of sinful living. And the things that you would list here may be different from the things that he mentions there. But as you look back on the life you used to live, as you look back on the, on the desires you used to, to seek, uh, you summarize it as the wasted years of sinful living. And Peter mentions some things uh, that he said, this is the way the pagans used to live. Verse 3, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans here in this context literally means the Gentiles. The Gentiles, which is an indication that, another indication that this letter, yes, though it could have been written for Jews, it could have very easily been, been written for Gentiles as well. Many of Peter's readers apparently had been converted from a pagan lifestyle. Which brings us to the bottom of your note sheet. I've got some more things to say. But on the bottom of your note sheet, there's an important point I want you to remember. And that is this. The gospel changes people. Can you say amen to that? The gospel changes people. It doesn't just change our eternal destiny, though it does that. It changes the way we live our lives. Peter is talking about people. He said, this is verse 3. For you spend enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. But now they don't live that way anymore. Now they don't give themselves to those things anymore. Now they don't seek to fulfill those evil desires anymore. Something has made a difference in their life. Or maybe it would be better to say someone has made a difference in their life. You see, for every Christian, and I know I'm I'm preaching to the home crowd tonight, but Uh, It still bears repeating that for every Christian, every person here tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus, for every one of us, everyone watching online, for every Christian, there is an A.D. I'm sorry, I should go over here. There is a B.C. and an A.D. time in our lives. Of course, the B.C., the, the before Christ, that's when we gave ourselves to our desires. 
our own evil desires. And, and we could make a list of the things that, that we used to be involved in. Make a list of the things that did not honor God. And you, you could go down the list and say, Boy, I'm not proud of, of the things that I once did and the way that I once lived. The, the list that Peter gives us is not intended to be exhaustive. It is simply representative uh, of how the believers were living before Christ. But when you look at that, here's the thing that's so interesting to me about this diagram. Two things. Number one, do you know why people do these kind of things? Do you know why people fulfill, seek to fulfill their own evil desires? Do you know why they give themselves to the wasted years of sinful living? The reason people give themselves to the wasted years of sinful living, watch this, so simple but so powerful. The reason that they live like this is because they've never had this experience in their life. Now, we're over here. This is before Christ. We're over here. That It's after we have a relationship with Jesus. And sometimes when we spend our so many years on this side. I've spent about 50 years of my life now on this side. And when you've spent that much time on this side, it's hard to imagine how people over here can live the way that they live. But we forget the reason they live the way that they live is because they've never had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. Now, there's something else though. The people that are living over here, they don't understand why you are doing what you're doing over here. Or to say it differently, they don't understand over here why you won't join them. They can't comprehend why you would not want to participate with them over here. They've never had that life-changing experience. So they're looking at life from a human perspective. And from a human perspective, they look at your life and they see that your life is different. And they cannot, for the life of them, understand why you would not participate with them. And that's right there in the text. Look at what he says. Verse 4. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. They think it's strange that you won't come over and go to their party. They think it's strange that you won't participate in something that they're a part of. So we're over here on this side saying, how could you give yourself to that? But they've never had this experience. And they're on that side looking at you saying, how could you not come over here and enjoy this? Are you high and mighty? Are you a holier than thou person? Why won't you participate in this with us? And it's interesting how Peter describes it. They think it's strange that you don't participate. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And not only do they think it's strange, Peter says, and they heap, how did he describe it? They heap abuse on you. In other words, they expect everybody to speak their foul language. And when you don't join them, uh, then they ridicule you. They expect everybody to follow their distorted mindset. 
they, accept, they expect everybody to agree with their corrupt cultural values. And when you don't agree with them, they heap abuse on you. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> that verse describes what's happening in America right now. Just read it one more time. They, just think about the news. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. That's the newspaper. That's the TV news that we're watching. We're living in a time when these words are being played out every day. Whether it's abortion or sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, drug use, alcohol abuse, whatever the situation may be, they think it's strange that you don't agree with them. They think it's strange that you don't participate. They, they think it's strange that you have a different perspective. And we're on this side saying, how could you think that? How could you live that way? How could you support that? We're on this side because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our lives have been changed and we want everybody else to have our viewpoint. They're on the other side saying, listen, uh, you bunch of hypocritical Christians, you need to get out of my home. You need to get out of my life. You need to let us live our lives the way we want to live our lives. Uh, don't tell me what to do with my body, etc., 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 etc. And they think it's strange that you're not participating, or that you have a different viewpoint. It would be okay if they just thought you were strange, but Peter goes on to say, but they don't just do that. They heap abuse on you. I, I did a little just Google search and it didn't take long to find an example of this. Uh, now, what I'm about to read you is from Time Magazine, which of course is not a religious publication. Time Magazine. And the thing I'm about to read you is about uh, eight years old. So the headline, this was June 29th, 2016, and and I don't know if this was like an op-ed piece or I think it was actually a news article. But <clears throat> the title, again, I acknowledge this is, this is uh, six years old or so. But uh, the title in Time Magazine, this article, was this. Regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. Regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. Time Magazine, six years ago. I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs real quickly. This new vigorous secularism has catapulted mockery of Christianity into the mainstream and set a new low for what counts as civil criticism of people's most cherished beliefs. In some precincts, the, quote, faith of our fathers is controversial as never before. The second paragraph says, some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs lately. Now hear that, six years ago. Some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs lately. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of the game. The fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. The Marine court martial for posting a Bible verse above her desk. And other examples of this new intolerance. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs. Now, hear, the, hear that sentence again. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater 
at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed, quote, war on women. And it says in the text, they think it's strange you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. The situation in verse 4 seems to indicate that this kind of persecution that the believers were experiencing was, watch this, it was not from the Roman government, though that would later come. But the abuse that Peter was talking about, the abuse that, that they, these Christians were experiencing was not from the Roman government, it was the viciousness of people who lived around them. People who knew them before they got saved. People who used to party with them, but now these people are living differently. And they don't understand why you're living the way that you're living. And they heap abuse on you. They are your former friends. They are your neighbors. They are your family members. And they don't understand what's happened in your life. And they think it's strange that you're doing what you're doing. And they heap abuse on you because of the strange way that you're living. Peter assures these Christians and us that everyone will be accountable for their actions. He says in verse 5, but these people who are heaping abuse on you, but they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. One day God will write everything and they will have to give an account, just like you and I will. And he says in verse 6, and I'll close with this, he says in verse 6, and this, this is a little bit of a different or, or a difficult verse because we're not exactly sure uh, what it's tying into. Uh, let me just read it for you. For, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body and live according to God in regard to the spirit. Uh, he talks about the gospel being preached to those who are now dead. This, this is talking about a past tense experience. It, it says the gospel was preached. This is something that's happened in the past. He's not talking about preaching to people who, who are dead, but rather he's talking about preaching the gospel to people who now are dead. That is, they heard the gospel when they were alive. Now those people are dead. But they heard the gospel, they're dead now, and they're going to one day have to give an account to God. Peter is talking about, I believe, that we will all be judged. Sometimes we're judged by men here in this world. But ultimately, we will all be judged by God. Uh, and I think perhaps Peter is referring to deceased Christians in this verse. The gospel was preached to these men and women. And they're now dead, but their life will be accountable to God just like our lives will be as well. Judged in the flesh by men, and yet judged in the spirit after death by God. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. I, I, I want to close by asking you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read these two verses to you in, uh, as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. This, of course, was not written by Peter, but was written by the Apostle Paul. 
And Paul says in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. We all, we all will one day be judged by what we did with Jesus. We all will one day be judged by the opportunity that was ours to live our lives for God. Remember the heading in chapter 4, I said in my Bible, is living for God. Peter says, when you're seeking the will of God to live for Him, then you are done with sin. Not that you'll never sin. It's not that you'll never be tempted. But that's not what you're seeking anymore. You're done with sin. Now you're living for God. Let me pray with you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that the word is timely. And and yes, we live in a time in our own nation where people heap abuse on us because of our own convictions, because of our the way we live our lives, or because we refuse to participate in something or refuse to support something that those who don't know you, uh, they don't understand why we wouldn't be a part of it. And so, Lord, thank you for the timeliness of your word and continue to teach us so that we might live our lives for God. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you Sunday.